You are listening to Episode 2 of Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper. Written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 3. Numar System. 2358, May 30th. Eight days out of Numar, I ran out of things to read. Uh, It wasn't really the case that I ran out of things to read. More precisely, I ran out of things I wanted to read. Growing up with an ancient lit professor, there were always things to read. Mom had a habit of discussing my reading with me over dinner. I'd acquired the habit early. My tablet was full of books, and the ship's library was available to me. It was extensive. The problem was, really, that I was unused to inactivity. Since Neris, I had never had more than a few moments free. From the planet to the lowest to the academy, I'd had things to do. There were people to do them with. During my third stanier at Port Newmar, I longed for the opportunity to just curl up with a book and a fresh pot of coffee and to bury myself in the story. For three weeks during the spring of that third stanier, the desire for a fresh book and no demands was physical, an ache in my stomach. Something bounced me out of it then, and so it was with a certain degree of ruefulness that I ran to the end of my reading binge within so short a time. Looking forward to another month in transit, I realized I needed to find something else to do. The Ellis's small workout room, it wasn't big enough to be called a gym, was available around the clock, of course, and the treadmills and sauna saw a lot of me even during the first few days underway. There was a smallish open space where I could run through my Tai Chi exercises as well. After four years with Sifu Numar, I had a good grasp of the basics, and I felt my energy, strength, and balance develop as I got deeper and deeper into the discipline during my time at the academy. So when I ran out of things I wanted to read, I spent more time doing the moving meditation of Tai Chi in the workout room. During the middle of the morning, I usually had the place to myself and could zone out, my mind not so much disengaged as completely focused. I worked on getting each movement where it needed to be, each finger, each toe, the shifting of my weight. Your back knee isn't bent far enough. I blinked out of my focus and saw that one of my fellow passengers, a man we knew only as Kurt, had come into the gym dressed in loose-fitting workout clothes. He didn't smile, but then he never smiled. As nearly as I could tell, his face never moved from that blank, neutral expression. His eyes were always focused on whatever he was looking at, but he always seemed to have a kind of expression like he was listening to something I couldn't hear. He traveled with a small man who appeared to be his employer. I said... Your back knee isn't bent far enough. It needs just a touch more to free that flow a bit, he said. His voice a smooth tenor that seemed almost too light for the bull-like frame. I looked down and realized he was right. I was getting a bit sloppy and settled my weight a bit backwards to flex the knee a little more. Thanks, I told him with a smile. That feels better. May I join you? he asked evenly. I shrugged and adjusted my position on the floor to make room for him. He stepped into my routine without hesitation and followed along one step behind and one step to the left as I completed the Wu long form. From the corner of my eye, I could see his large body work smoothly and wave hands as clouds. But I had a bit of advantage and snake creeps down. His larger frame bent, dipped, and lifted into golden cock almost effortlessly, but since I was shorter, I could get lower, although not by much. His movements were smooth, controlled, and carried the graceful power I recognized in Sifu Numar. 
but this was obviously not his main discipline. After a few ticks, I put him out of my mind and moved directly into a Yang-style short form before starting the Wu Long once more. At the end of the Wu, I stopped and let the Qi settle, intending to head for a sauna and a shower. Do you push hands? Kurt asked. Oh, I have, but I'm not very good, I told him with a rueful smile. The academy training master said I have all the fighting instincts of good lawn furniture. Kurt didn't smile exactly, but I caught a twinkle in his eyes. You studied with Sifu Numar at the academy then? He asked softly. I just nodded in agreement. He took the beginning pose for push hands and waited for me to step in. I did so, and we worked slowly through several cycles of the drill, inside, outside, up, across, swap. We moved faster until I pushed and he wasn't there. Instead, he rocked me back on my heels with a touch on the shoulder. He did smile then, and proceeded to show me a few things. After two solid stands, the sweat was rolling down my legs under my pants, and I had the firm, burning glow from a good workout— when we broke, Kurt bowed, and I returned it, bowing much lower to him than he did to me. Thank you for the workout, he said. This is the time of day that Harvey does most of his work, so I'm free, if you'd care to meet me tomorrow. It was less a question than a statement. Thank you, I replied sincerely, and bowed again. I went to the sauna while Kurt fired up one of the treadmills and started to run on it. Half a stand later, when I came out of the sauna, he was still running and nodded pleasantly to me as I left ahead for the showers. Afterwards, I gravitated to the galley, where Paul Mueller held court. I didn't know what it was like for other people, but my early days in the Lois made me appreciate the mess deck and galley as the heart of the ship. The galley on the Ellis was no exception. My first exposure to small ship life was on the voyage from Dunsany Roads to Newmar on the Bad Penny with Pip's aunt and uncle. The Penny was a family ship with an eat-in galley, where we'd spent many an evening gathered around the table as we sailed through the deep dark. The Ellis had a dining room for the passengers and crew. The actual galley itself was tucked away around the corner, with a cleverly concealed pass-through and door that connected the galley to the dining room. Breakfast and lunch were typically buffet-style at the pass-through, always a hot dish or two and plenty of fruits and vegetables. Dinner was different. It was served family-style, with serving platters and bowls on the large table in the dining room. The captain presided at the head of the table, with passengers rotating in some formula that I had not been able to discern after only a few days underway. Because of the long workout, I had almost missed lunch. The others had come and gone, and Paul was already beginning to clear away. Mr. Wong, he said, I wondered if you were skipping lunch today. I snagged a few pieces of fruit, a couple small rolls, and a block of cheese from the buffet and stood back to let him work. It wasn't my intention, Mr. Mueller, I told him with a smile. I was working out with Kurt and lost track of the time. I waved a hand vaguely at the setup. Please don't let me interrupt. I know how hard it is to keep up with the galley. He smiled and started his clean-up routine. You've worked the galley then, Mr. Huang, he asked as he worked. Mess hand on the Lois McKendrick, Mr. Mueller. Some of the happiest times happened on that mess deck. I smiled to myself as the warm memories slipped through my mind. Paul finished clearing the buffet and closed the pass-through after wiping everything down. I finished the fruit, bread, and cheese and noticed the crumbs I'd scattered while I was standing there eating and talking to Paul. While he was clattering in the galley, I grabbed the sweeper from the bracket on the bulkhead and picked up my crumbs, and since I had it out, did the whole floor. In a few ticks, Paul came into the dining room through the connecting door and caught me with the sweeper in my hand. You didn't have to do that, Mr. Schwong, he said with a concerned look on his face. I just grinned at him. It was my pleasure, and please, my name is Ishmael. You can call me that. 
We're going to be cooped up here for a while yet. We may as well get comfy. His wrinkled face folded into a lopsided smile, and his eyes danced at me as he held out a roughened paw. Paul, then, Ishmael, and tell me about working in the galley while I finish cleaning up, if you don't mind. So I stood in the doorway, regaling Paul with stories of the mess deck on the Lois, as he proceeded to clear and clean everything in the three-by-five-meter galley. The galley itself was a marvel of compact installation. The cooktop was four-burner design, but instead of the normal two-by-two, the four were lined up in a narrow counter. The ovens, and there were three of them, were recessed into the bulkhead. Instead of the big steam kettles we'd had on the Lois, the Ellis had an honest-to-God's pot rack, and I couldn't help but admire the big chillers, larders, and carefully laid-out cabinets and counters. It was perfectly set up for a one-person operation. In just a few ticks, Paul finished up his after-lunch routine and shooed me out of the galley. It's time for my nap, Ishmael, he told me with a smile. Baked chicken for dinner, he said, as he secured the pass-through door, and I could hear him clicking off the lights as he exited through the main entry on the other side of the galley. My brief foray had satisfied something I wasn't sure I could name. There was another book or two I wanted to read, and I suddenly looked forward to picking up where I'd left off on my reading list. I grinned to myself and headed back to my stateroom. Chapter 4. Diurnia System, 2358, July 1st. After my early adjustment period, the days had settled into a comfortable pattern. Mornings were taken up with my workouts with Kurt. He helped me focus my discipline from a kind of theoretical exhibition to a more practical mode of self-defense. He was fond of saying, the most effective defense is avoiding the fight. In spite of that, he had a lot of good tips on how to cope with the situation when avoidance wasn't possible. By the time we were preparing to dock in Diurnia, I was not so foolish as to think I'd win against somebody like Kurt, but I was a lot more confident that I could at least survive it. The trip was not without surprises. The passenger list consisted of Kurt and his boss, Harvey Blaylock, who was some wiggity-wig in Diurnia and seldom left his stateroom, an older couple, the Hokinsons, who turned out to be rabid bridge players. They soon had a standing foursome comprised of themselves, a dour sales agent named Philip Jameson, and demure Georgina Fredericks. Whenever they played, Georgina's husband William was always present and behaved like a sulky boy being forced to play by himself while the adults were occupied. Georgina always exhibited a shy and reserved air, even while running a seven-no-trump hand. Her jubilation manifested as a smile that was perhaps just a tiny bit broader than normal. While the Hokinsons and their partners played bridge in the common room most of the afternoon, the after-dinner hour was taken up with cinema viewings. Leslie March, a middle-aged woman heading for Diurnia to open a clothing store, turned out to be a very pleasant and knowledgeable film connoisseur. At 20.30 each evening, the big viewer in the commons became our movie theater, and regardless of which film we picked, Leslie had a ready stream of information about the story, the characters, the actors, the director, even the producer. She managed to carry on her running commentary without interfering one iota with the viewing experience. She was one of those uncanny people who knew exactly when to speak and, more importantly, when to shut up. As we watched more movies, I came to appreciate her ready wit and insightful observations into the art of cinema. As the trip wore on, Leslie would often spend a few ticks before the film talking about it, and sometimes we'd sit around for as much as two stands afterwards discussing the film that we'd just watched. 
The transit from Newmar to Diurnia took 40 days. Given the distances involved, that was pretty darn good. The Ellis reached the Burleson limit only 16 days out of Newmar. Compared to what I was used to, that was an astonishingly short run out. We spent six days and three jumps in the between spaces of the deep dark, running through the unpopulated middle of the western annex, followed by an 18-day run into Diurnia orbital. The published transit time was 42 days, but Captain Lachlan brought the ship in two days early. One of the differences between being a passenger and being crew was the sense of unreality. I had a feeling of being wrapped in a cocoon, each day largely like the previous. I knew enough not to dwell on the duration of the journey, but my brain went into a kind of contemplative loop that consisted of the daily workouts with Kurt, the quiet afternoons reading in my bunk, the bridge games providing a homely and sometimes not so quiet backdrop. Mr. Hokinson tended toward the boisterous at times, but his wife shushed him with a stern, Please, Alan, there are other people on the ship. And he would quiet down again as the next hand began. We were a day out of Diurnia when Captain Lachlan put the view from the bridge monitors up on the large screen in the passenger lounge. The familiar orbital shape hung like a tin can in space. The light from Diurnia's primary glinted from the sides during the daylight passages, and the station's lights gleamed in the dark of the nighttime. The picture served as a kind of wake-up call for me. Suddenly, the end of the voyage was in sight. In a few days, I'd be back on ship and trying to be a good third mate. Alan Hokinson found me staring into the monitor just before lunch on our last day underway. "'Looking forward to a new ship, Mr. Huang?' he asked with a soft smile. I shrugged. I had summer cruises at the Academy, so I know every ship is different, but my first ship is still a kind of home to me, I said quietly. I hope the next one will be, too. He chuckled and nodded. It's your first job out of school, he asked. I smiled sheepishly. Yes, well, intellectually I know this won't be the be-all and end-all, I said, and I'm not anywhere near as good as I think, but part of me hopes that I know at least part of what I'm doing. He gave me a paternal pat on the shoulder and said, You'll be fine, Mr. Huang. You're already ahead of many. The Academy is a good school. When I glanced from the screen, his eyes held a twinkle. Of course, it won't be easy, but in the end, a hundred years from now, who will know? I grinned at that. Well, I hope I will, I answered. He chuckled again. Yes, he said, there is that to consider. His voice stayed playful, but his tone shifted as he observed, Now that school's out, the real lessons begin. His eyes unfocused, and he looked inward and added, Learn them early and learn them well. Remediation is painful. I sighed, nodded my understanding. I suspect you're right, sir, I told the older man. He blinked and refocused with a rueful smile. Well, the bitter voice of experience, my boy, he said, since I crossed the century mark myself, I find I use it more and more often. He offered an almost apologetic shrug. Thanks, I told him sincerely. One of the things that had been drilled into us at the Academy and practically beaten into us as cadets on summer cruise was that we weren't really qualified to be third mates. The degree only permitted us to have some confidence when taking the third mate exam. Most of us sat for the license in a mass examination organized by the Academy during the latter half of senior year. Everybody I knew passed, or at least said they did. The actual licenses, arcane and freighted with significance, were delivered physically as well as digitally, and I had a nicely framed document, complete with scarlet seal, calligraphic embossing, and all the rights and privileges appropriate to my rank, which, from all my informal observation, really didn't amount to much. While the instructors at the academy were quick to assure us 
we were learning what we needed to know to be good officers in the deep dark. The summer cruises tended to disabuse us as we mixed it up with real officers. I hoped that some amount of that could be chalked up to hazing the next crop. I knew in my heart of hearts that a large part of it couldn't be. Standing there, staring at the live feed from the bridge, trying to pick out the ships docked around the middle of that gleaming tin can, and listening to Mr. Hokinson, I hoped I wasn't going to be one of those fresh-out-of-school know-it-alls. The next couple of stanniers would be fraught with all kinds of peril along those lines, and the last thing I wanted to do was to contribute to the stereotype. As if sensing my thoughts, Mr. Hokinson patted me once more on the shoulder and nodded gently. You'll be fine, my boy. You'll be fine. Paul Mueller pushed up the door of the pass-through with a loud rattle, announcing the start of lunch at that moment, and Mr. Hoganson wandered off to get some, leaving me contemplating my future for a moment or two longer before the rest of the passengers trooped into the lounge and we gathered around for lunch. That evening's movie was an older one, from around 2290, according to Leslie. The camera work was excellent, and the plot revolved around a middle-aged woman rebuilding her life after the tragic death of her husband and children. The lead actress was not the typical media darling sylph, but instead a meaty woman, made up to look even older than she was. The story built around a younger man that she'd met on holiday. It was somewhat predictable but poignantly done, and again, according to Leslie March, shot largely on location in Frangipani, one of the heavily islanded resort planets in the Chiba Quadrant. As the movie ground its way to the telegraphed conclusion, where the woman finally realized that life is fragile, bittersweet, and worth living by having a lot of stylized encounters with the younger man in a variety of settings, each more lovely than the last, just before being killed herself when a freak ocean storm barrels into their secluded hideaway and blows the small bungalow in on her, Leslie March became less and less talkative. Her commentary became less pointed until, in the end, she was left staring at the closing credits and nursing a gin and tonic while the rest of the passengers called it a night. She was one of the last to rise. Ishmael, she called as I was about to leave the lounge. I stepped out of the passage to allow the Hokinsons to go by me. Mrs. Hokinson smiled at me in what I imagined to be a very grandmotherly fashion as they ducked down the passage and murmured, See you in the morning, Mr. Huang. Leslie had drained her glass and slipped it into the rack for Paul to get in the morning. What did you think of the film? she asked not quite looking in my direction. Predictable, but pretty, I said. In what way predictable? she asked, looking up at me with soft blue eyes. She really was very attractive in ways that hadn't been obvious when I first met her. Well, even now, women who try to control their own lives, their own destinies, even after all humans have been and done, those women must die. She was killed by a storm, a wind of fate, because she dared to look for happiness in the arms of her young lover. I shook my head. My mother, the ancient lit professor. She would have had a lot to say about this, I'm sure, but it sure seems like an enduring theme. Women aren't allowed to be happy unless their happiness comes from the largesse of a man. As I was speaking, Leslie cocked her head slightly to one side. That's a pretty mature view for a guy who's fresh out of the academy, she noted, without making it sound like a left-handed compliment. Yeah, well, I started... I learned a lot from my mother. The old stories are full of this stuff. I cut my teeth on it. She was silent for a tick or two, looking at my face and trying to read something. You think it's still the case that society believes that men should control their women? She asked, finally. I shrugged. I don't know. My first ship was run by a woman. It was named for her great-grandmother. 
I nodded my head down the passageway. But we have two examples right here of women who are controlled largely by the men in their lives. She smiled and asked, You're including Mrs. Hokinson? I grinned. Well, that's a good point. She probably lets him think he's in charge. Leslie chuckled and seemed to make up her mind. Crossing the lounge, she took my hand in hers and started down the passageway toward the passenger staterooms. How do you feel about women who take charge? Do you believe they need to be punished, to be put in their places? She looked up into my face as she asked. I smiled, feeling the temperature rising in the ship as we sauntered down the hall. That depends, I said. Do you feel like being punished? It was her turn for a rueful smile. No, she said simply, and led me into her small stateroom, closing the door behind us. Thanks for listening to Double Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is a medley of jigs, eavesdroppers, both meat and drink, and Off We Go by Great Big C from their self-titled debut album. Find this and other songs by Great Big C at music.podshow.com. This has been a presentation from Dorandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.solarclipper.com.